are given the current state of things, it can be very easy to feel like you're the only one who gets it and to despair. If we're operating primarily in the mindset that is focused on ourselves, on our situation, on our fight alone, if we're operating primarily by pride, we will isolate ourselves and have no hope. You cannot lead your family from that mindset. However, the gospel truth kills our pride and opens our eyes to the reality that there are many other faithful saints and that you are not alone. You are united to them in brotherhood in Christ. Rather than despair, this brings us to gratitude in God. And in this study, we're going to look at how Paul exemplified these ideas in his greeting to the Colossian church. My name is Joel Sedeckes. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach Bible at a Christian high school in Chicago. Impacted by my students' questions, I set out on a journey that brought me first to seminary to study apologetics and philosophy of religion, and then into pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I saw firsthand the struggle of believers confronted with questions of life that at first seemed impossible to answer, and the powerful confidence that came when they saw how God's Word gives the answers and guidance they needed. I had a dream to spread that message and equip more followers of Jesus, so my family and I joined Crew and launched the Think Institute. Now I'm on a mission to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message by applying timeless biblical truths to current cultural challenges. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, learning how to interpret all of life through the lens of God's Word takes a lot of work, more than just one or two podcast episodes a week. If you have an interest in the intersection between the biblical worldview and biblical manhood and current events, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, consider joining our free online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and on Signal. There you can join hundreds of other Christ followers who are also on the same journey, and we trade apologetic stories and strategies, we discuss philosophy and theological questions. It's like a huge bull session around a bonfire in your backyard or at your favorite cigar lounge. So check out the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal. There are a lot of great Bible teachers out there, a lot of great resources. But I wanted to share one with you that I've developed that has been helpful in my own courses that I've taught through the Hammer and Anvil Society, which is the discipleship wing of the Think Institute. And this resource is called the Think Method of Biblical Study. And if you want to learn more about this, you can go to thethink.institute slash thinkmethod, thethink.institute slash thinkmethod. Now, we're going to be getting into Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 today. And if you want to follow along, you certainly can. Uh, in fact, I encourage it. That's again, that's Colossians 1, 1 through 3. And um, I'm going to be using the think method to walk through this passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through my process using the think method. And if you're watching live on YouTube, feel free to 
uh, to comment or ask a question, and I'll do my best to answer those in real time as we go. Normally, I wait till the end, but if you're watching live, I want to answer those uh, in real time today. So I'm going to share my screen. I don't normally do this, but I'm literally going to uh, show you how I tackled this passage. And my hope is that this can inspire you to go deeper in your own biblical study. And you know, when we study the Bible in this way, what we find is that God's truth has a lot of hope for us. It keeps us from despair. It keeps us from uh, sort of black pilling and, um, and allows us to live out our, our um, God-given call. And we're going to see that that's very important in this passage. All right. So let me magnify that on the screen there. And uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So Colossians 1, 1 through 3. Now, I started with the Greek. You may or may not um, have taken Greek. You may or may not know how to read it. But I started, I'm not going to attempt to read it to you out loud. I don't know how good my pronunciation is. But if you're looking at the screen there, you can see I started with the Greek. And um, from looking at the syntax, I created a syntactical outline. And that's what you can see next here. And I'm going to read my own translation first. Then I'll read it in the ESV with a little bit of help from the NASB. Verse 1 starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God and Timothy the brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying concerning you. All right, now here's the ESV translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, when you're using the think method, it starts with initial observations. You're going to ask several questions dealing with who, what, when, where, how, and why. The same questions that newspaper reporters are going to ask when they're looking at a story. So let's start with who. Let's get into who are the characters and what are, what are their characteristics. The characters, as I see it, there are three, Paul, Timothy, and the saints at Colossae. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and we find out he's a man of constant prayer. We learn that from verse one. Um, he uh, that he prays for the saints. Verse one of chapter. I'm sorry, that should say one three. The beauty of doing this in real time. I said it. It was three one, but it's one three. Paul is a man of constant prayer. Then there's Timothy. Timothy is a brother in Christ. He's also a co-laborer with Paul. Probably he was his secretary as Paul dictated this letter. Timothy probably wrote down the. Um, the words that Paul was dictating. And then there are the saints at Colossae. They are faithful and they are brothers in Christ. Notice they're also called saints, which is a word that means holy. They are holy ones. All right, the next thing you want to look at then is who are groups with similar characteristics today? Well, similar to Paul might be someone like Bible teachers, local church pastors, ministry leaders serving local churches. In a way, uh, my wife and I, Elisa, and me as support-raising missionaries, we play a similar role when we serve local churches. 
to what Paul did. We're not apostles per se, but uh, we, by serving local churches, we play a similar role. And there are many, many others like us. Uh, similar to Timothy, these would be pastoral fellows, pastors in training, missionary co-laborers, um, people on staff, perhaps at a local church, um, as- associate pastors. And then similar to the Saints of Colossae, these would be local church members, Christians, everyday Christians. And then because this is a Christian podcast, I also said Christian podcast listeners. So the Think Squad would fit into that category as well. The faithful saints at Colossae are similar. They're Paul's audience. So Paul's not, of course, recording a podcast. He's writing an epistle. And um, his audience is like analogous to the listeners of this podcast or another Christian Bible-centered podcast. Next, we want to look at what. We looked at who. Now let's look at what. What are we dealing with? What kind of passage is this? Well, let's start with genre. There are many different genres in Scripture. This is an epistle, which means it's a letter. And it's an apostolic epistle. It's written from Paul to the saints of Colossae. The most important idea or event in these first three verses is Paul is greeting the Colossian saints. That's what that's what's going on here. So what's the problem, need, or sin that's being addressed? Well, Paul is, uh, they are in need of apostolic guidance and encouragement. We're going to see that there's been some false teaching creeping into the church, and they need apostolic guidance and encouragement. They need holiness, and they need faithfulness. They, the saints. They need grace and peace from God, which is what Paul wishes them. And they need solidarity with one another and God in Christ. After all, Paul calls them brothers. He says Timothy is a brother and that the saints in Colossae are brothers as well. When you think about brothers, you think about brothers in arms, you think about soldiers marching into battle, marching into the fight. They must have solidarity. They must be in lockstep. So solidarity, unity, union, communion, uh, oneness, this is a need of the saints in Colossae. And then the other need here is prayer. The apostle is giving guidance. He's going to be giving guidance to the Colossian church. But what we find is that that guidance is like a plant that is growing in the soil of prayer, constant, diligent prayer. He says that he's been praying for them always, and he's actually been thanking God for them. And that's going to be the linchpin of what we talk about here. Even his wish of grace and peace is a mini prayer. He's asking God to grant them grace and peace. Now, Paul is about to address false teaching that they've been dealing with, and he begins by appealing to their faithfulness, godliness, and his own prayerfulness for them. This is probably the central spiritual discipline that is addressed in this short passage, the discipline of prayer. All right, so we talked about who, we talked about what, now let's talk about when. When was this written? Well, if you do a little research, like I did with my ESV study Bible, which I highly recommend, you can find out that this epistle was written in about the year 62 AD. And you want to find out then what happened prior to this. Well, let's go back to 33 AD, so 29 years prior. Jesus has died and rose again. Paul was converted in the year 33, the same year that Jesus rose from the dead, most likely. Paul visited Jerusalem three years later in 36. Paul's visit to Jerusalem uh, 
uh, was followed by another visit to Jerusalem um, in 44 to 47 AD. He went there for famine relief. Then he had his first missionary journey in 46 to 47. Then he visited Jerusalem again for the Apostolic Council, which is recorded in Acts 15. That was round about the year 48 and 49. And then he had his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey between the years 49 and 57. That also includes three years in Ephesus. Now, when Paul was in Ephesus, something interesting happened. A man named Epaphras was converted, received Jesus Christ, and Epaphras went back to his homeland, uh, his hometown of Colossae. And Epaphras spread the gospel in Colossae and started the Christian church. Now we're looking at the years 52 to 57. He started the Colossian church. Paul then finds himself under house arrest in Rome in 62 AD, and then he has now received a report in about the year 62, or in the year 62, from Epaphras. Epaphras has come and told him about Colossae. He's told him that the the brothers are remaining faithful, but there is a heresy that is sneaking its way into the church. And that, of course, makes Paul very upset. And then he's writing this letter to uh, counteract it, to contradict that false teaching. So that's where we're at. These are the events that have happened prior to Paul writing this. Now, how does this passage connect with what has come before? Well, the Colossian saints were converted as an indirect result of Paul's having evangelized in Ephesus. So Paul's own missionary journeys have indirectly been responsible for the uh, the existence of the Colossian church, which is kind of a cool thing for Paul, because it wasn't his work, but it was the the results of his work that led to uh, the existence of the church there in Colossae. Now, Paul has heard the report from Epaphras, and he's responding. He's just come off of his journey to Rome. Rome is where he is right now. And you can read about that in Acts 27, 28. So he's been shipwrecked. He's been locked up. He's under house arrest. And he's just gotten this report from Epaphras, which is somewhat encouraging and somewhat distressing for the apostle. So what are some similar situations we might find ourselves in? When you're using the think method, you always want to ask yourself, how does this connect to, uh, or when you're studying the Bible in general, how does this connect? What are some similar relevant contemporary situations? Especially here uh, at the Think Institute, we want to address, we want to, to answer current cultural challenges with timeless biblical truth. In order to uh, to do that, we have to connect the text to our um our contemporary situation. So similar situations we may find ourselves in. First one would be having loved ones that are swept up in false teachings. Some of you can relate to that, family, friends, or maybe you know fellow Christians who are being troubled by errant, heterodox doctrines, teachings that are unbiblical. Or maybe you feel like the state of the church in America is dire and hopeless. I talked about this in my last podcast episode. Um, you're, you're not, you're not thinking about pausing, giving thanks to God for the faithfulness of the saints who are holding fast. Instead, in your own heart, you find yourself feeling harried, feeling troubled, worried, um, not very thankful. Or maybe you're looking around and you're seeing the church straying 
and you are desiring to remain faithful and holy, and you want to re- you want to be unified with other Christians who share a similar desire. All right, so we've talked about several aspects of the passage uh, in context. Let's talk about the where. Where is Paul? Where is his audience? Paul is imprisoned at Rome, and the Colossian saints are in Colossae, which is a small town. It's a small city, not massive. I like to think of it kind of like the Tri-Cities where I live, where the Think Institute is located. Especially, we, my family, we moved from Chicago, you may know this, a little over a year ago. And now we find ourselves in the Tri-Cities, which you know combined is um, the three cities here in Illinois. It's a small fraction of the, um, the population of Chicago. And so Colossae was somewhat similar. It was a small town, small city, and this is where Paul is writing to. This is where the Colossian church is. So that's the where. Now, the how. How does this point to Jesus and the gospel? Well, it affirms that Jesus is the one who unites the brothers. They are brothers in Christ, and that he is the son of God, and that it is by the will of God that we are able to serve God in our callings. So Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That teaches us something about God and his will and about the gospel. Uh, Paul Paul was bringing the gospel, and that, that very role was given to him by the will of God. How does this remind us of other Bible passages? Well, Paul consistently wishes his audience in other other passages, you know, whether it's Ephesians, whether it's Romans, he wishes his audience grace and peace from God through the Lord Jesus. He asserts his credentials as an apostle, saying that he got this role from God, and he gives credit to God for him having that status. So very similar greeting here, very Pauline greeting. Yes, there are some people who debate the authorship, the Pauline authorship of Colossians. Obviously, I don't agree with those critics. I think it's very clear that Paul wrote Colossians, especially when you compare it to a book like Ephesians. Uh, Colossians is sometimes called a condensed version of Ephesians. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to study it, because we've got a study going right now um, with, with through the Hammer and Anvil Society on Ephesians, and Colossians is sort of the natural next book to study after Ephesians, I think. Okay, so how does... Uh, how does this passage solve the problems or sins that are that are being addressed? We're going to talk more about this later. But Paul's statement that he thanks God for their faithfulness, as well as mentioning their confraternity as brothers in Christ, points up the fact that for Christians, true unity is a product of our union with Christ, our adherence to true doctrine, and something to be celebrated with gratitude to God. So if you feel like you're alone, if you feel like you're the only one in this fight, you're feeling isolated, this passage is going to confront that and remind you about the brotherhood that you share with other believers. It's going to be very encouraging. It's very encouraging for me as I studied it. Now let's talk about the why. Why did God include this passage in the Bible? I believe He wanted to illustrate the reality that Christians are brothers, united in Christ, and that our faithfulness is a joyful thing worth celebrating, a thing about which we should express our gratitude to God. So 
what is the relevance of this idea and this passage for today? Here's what I think it is. Yes, things are looking bleak in the United States. Far more churches are closing than are being planted. Leftist, Marxist doctrines, unbiblical teachings are infiltrating not only society, but churches and ministries. And our own government is isolating us and working against us in many ways. However, in the midst of this, there are faithful brothers in Christ about whom we can and should thank God always in our prayers. You see the connection between what Paul says and our own current, present, modern-day situation? Why did God want me to read this passage? Well, here's my hypothesis on that. I think that God wanted to encourage me to thank him for such brothers in my own life, to let them know that I'm grateful for them, and to make sure my teaching is growing from a bed of rich, consistent prayer for the ones that I'm teaching. So, Think Squad, that means that I need to be praying for you. And if you're a teacher of the Bible, or if you're a dad, or if you're a husband, and you've got people in your life who rely on your teaching— you should be praying for them as well, thanking God for their faithfulness and their willingness to listen to his word. All right, now we're going to get into the meat of the process. Those were the initial reflections. Now we're going to get into the think process, T-H-I-N-K. And what does that stand for? If you don't know, it stands for teaching, heart, improvement, now what, and knowledge needed. So that's what we're going to get into now. It's not going to take a ton of time. We'll be through this relatively quickly, but we are. Um, but it, but because we've done these initial reflections, because we've studied uh, the passage in its context, now we're going to be able to draw out these principles and these applications much quicker, much easier, and we're going to have a much more rich Bible study than if we were just to read and do a surface-level study. So, if you don't have it out yet, get out your Bible. We're about to dive in. All right, the first step then is teaching. What does this passage teach us about God? And we're just going to rapid-fire our way through these. Here's what we learned about God in the passage. And you know what? If you see something that I don't, that I that I missed here, please Uh, Let me know in the comments if you're watching this live. I'd love to hear your insights as we go as well. And if there's anything that is unclear, you can leave a comment or you can email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. Okay, what does it teach us about God? God wanted Paul to be an apostle. God gives grace and peace. God is responsible for the faithfulness of the saints. God is the Father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus, who is the Son of God, is Lord and Christ. So there's a lot there, even in these short verses. There's a lot of theology packed in to this passage. What does it teach us then about the world? I got two things. Maybe you'll get more. The world is being changed according to the will of God. The Apostle Paul, think about the impact that he had not only on the Middle East and the Mediterranean world, but ultimately on the entire world. And that was because God called him as an apostle. So 
Paul was an apostle because of the will of God. Paul's work changed the world. That means that the world is being changed according to the will of God. And then we also learned that even a small church in a small city, it was only around for about a decade at that time, can be important in God's sight. You know, the church at Colossae is forever immortalized in Scripture. That is pretty cool. That tells us something amazing about the world and God's plans for it. What does it then teach us about man, about humanity? Well, we learn that mankind is united or unifiable in Christ. True brotherhood, true unity comes from Christ. We also learn that mankind is reliant or dependent on the will of God. Paul's apostleship, for example, was by the will of God. And the Colossian church's faithfulness was dependent on the will of God. We know this because Paul thanks God for their faithfulness. You you only thank someone for something that they've done or they've given you. So if Paul is thanking God for their faithfulness, that means that their faithfulness was a result of God's will and God's power, which is pretty cool if you think about it. We also learn about man that man needs help. Paul had help from Timothy. So there's a strong message there, even if it's subtle, about the the futility of trying to go it alone and the necessity of having friends, having co-workers, compatriots, having a confraternity of brothers that we can labor with. And then finally, we learn that when men are faithful, it's something to praise God about. And of course, this ties back in with mankind being reliant on the will of God. The next thing that we want to look at then is, what does this teach us about ourselves? So I did this for myself as I was reading, so I'm going to get a little personal here. And I'll tell you, here's what I learned about myself. My role in Christ's kingdom is due to God's will. Just like Paul, just like Timothy, just like the Colossians, my will is is due, I'm sorry, my kingdom is, let me try that one more time. My role in God's kingdom is due to God's will. Second thing I learned, it's important for me to co-labor with godly brothers. I also learned that I need to thank God more for the faithfulness of other Christians, and that I should also make sure that my teaching and the way that I address current cultural challenges is grounded in, rooted in, soil that is saturated in prayer. In other words, I need to pray more, and I need to be more thankful for the people that I see God working through. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you doom scroll the news, looking, almost just looking for bad news. I don't know what it is about us that makes us do this, but something in our own hearts looks for the bad news, and then we worry about it. But instead, this passage teaches us not to do that. Instead, it teaches us to look at the faithfulness of others. And here's the big idea that I believe this passage is teaching. Thank God for keeping other Christian brothers faithful today. Thank God for keeping other Christian brothers faithful today. We don't have to go it alone. We aren't going it alone. We literally are not alone. We have God. We have Christ, who is God in the flesh, Son of God and we have many faithful brothers. Okay, so now, how? let's talk about heart. That's the next, the next thing we're going to talk about here. Remember, we did teaching, now we're doing heart. And if you're, um, 
if you're tracking with me, that's the second letter in the think method, T-H-I-N-K. Okay, heart. How does the teaching go against popular ideas or cultural values? Well, we value comfort. So we either go along with false ideas because we don't want to be made uncomfortable by resisting them, or we simply complain when we are made uncomfortable by them rather than praying and thanking God for those who have not capitulated to false ideologies, unbiblical ideas. Um, Along with this is the heart condition of pride. Pride focuses on the self. Pride focuses on uh, maintaining a copacetic environment for the self so that the self can be exalted, the self can be comforted, the self can be made a priority and really the top priority. So that brings us then to the second question dealing with heart. How have I or others specifically failed to live up to the teaching? Well, I can tell you me personally, this is true. Again, I'm getting personal here. Or as the younger millennials might say, authentic. I'm getting very authentic right now. I spend more time worrying than I do praying about the things that I worry about. Maybe you can relate to that. I spend very little time thanking God for the faithfulness of those who have not given in to false ideologies. I'm not going to sit here and say false ideologies are not a problem. But what I am going to say is I don't spend enough time thanking God for those who have not given in, who have not capitulated. How does this passage confront the the three categories of sin identified by the Apostle John in 1 John? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here's how. Lust of the flesh. Laziness. Laziness keeps us scrolling rather than in prayer. Doom scrolling rather than in prayer. You know, that's where you just swipe up, swipe up, swipe up, looking at the, the negative headlines, looking for the bad news. It's laziness that keeps us from praying. It's easier to scroll than it is to pray. What about lust of the eyes? Well, desire and curiosity keeps us focused on the new news, the next thing to come down the headline, the next outrageous thing that the president did or that Jen Psaki said or that some senator in uh, California or if you live in California, maybe New York or Illinois, that's where I live, uh, that you're, you're, um, you're focused on on looking at the outrageous videos, the outrageous headlines. That can be a form of the lust of the eyes. We don't always think of lust of the eyes in that way, but uh, rather we focus on those things rather than timeless truths, rather than the goodness and faithfulness exhibited by churches and believers. And that stuff never makes the headlines. And then finally, I think this one is the big one, the pride of life. We have an unhealthy desire all too often to be known as someone with the answers or someone who's got the solution or or someone who's going to be uh, on the right side of the, the dog pile on Twitter. You know, someone's getting dragged on Twitter. Uh, some Some lefty posted something on Twitter that's just ridiculous, and we want to be there and we want to jump on. And look, it's not just the left who virtue signals. You know, we conservatives, we've, we virtue signal as well. And that can be bound up with pride. We want 
we want the props for being on the right side. We want the retweets. We want the likes. We want to get uh, reposted on Gab. And, you know, for me, this is the key point. It's the pride. It's the pride of life. And so that's something that this passage is very much going to address for us. All right. Let's talk about the what I believe then is the heart condition that God is addressing here. Pride. Pride is the self-focus that makes the ideological battle that we are in all about oneself. It puts the self in the middle. You cannot um, you cannot oppose evil ideologies with prideful motives in, in any kind of an effective way. It will not yield godly results because pride is sin, and you can't fight sin with more sin. Pride focuses on me, on myself, over against everyone else, and therefore pride isolates. But godly gratitude, on the other hand, is outward-focused and celebrates the good that God is doing in and through others, not by denying the bad or wishing it away, hiding your head in the sand, but rather by focusing our attention on the Lord and on the work that the Lord is doing in others. All right, now we move on to the I in the think method, and that is improvement. This is how we allow the gospel to improve our understanding and our view of the situation. In other words, the gospel is going to correct our understanding and correct our our life. So how does this passage point to the truth of the gospel? It is a reminder that God's light shines even in the midst of darkness, even growing darkness. Even when, in Paul's day, unbiblical ideologies were encroaching into the church there at Colossae, Paul says that there are still saints there that are being faithful. And guess what? The same is true for us. How, how, is, how does the gospel then re-interpret um, re, uh, life for us? How does it improve our understanding? Well, the death of Jesus Christ unites ethnic half-breeds like Timothy, who is half Jew, half Greek, as well as pure-blood Jewish men like Paul and Gentile outsiders like the Colossians. There is no ethnic distinction at the foot of the cross. There is no room for superficial pride at the foot of the cross. And for some in our world today, they put a lot of pride in their ethnicity or their skin color. And we hear about this all the time. Even if you personally aren't trusting it, trusting in that, uh, you might be tempted to go in that direction. But God's abundant grace is working in the lives of other blood-bought sinners who have been turned into saints, and not just internally, but also in a way that overflows and becomes externally visible. So the gospel is working in our hearts and in our lives as the Holy Spirit applies that truth to our life. And it's not just our life, it's not just your life or my life, but I get to see what God's doing in your life. You get to see what God's doing in my life. And we get to thank God together for the work that he's doing in other saints. So Christ's atoning death burial, and resurrection resulted in my own personal redemption and sanctification, meaning being made holy, but also in the redemption of others. And their ongoing sanctification 
and steadfastness is something that I should celebrate, especially in the face of pressures and forces working against them. So the bleaker things get, the darker things may get in our society, in culture, the more, the the brighter, the light of other believers being faithful shines. And the more we ought to celebrate that, the more stark that light becomes against the darkness. So then how does the gospel present a truer, better message than the ideas or values confronted by this passage? Well, by talking about um, the brotherhood that they share, by talking about the prayer of thanksgiving that he is offering on behalf of the Colossians, Paul is pushing back against pride and isolationism. Rather than saying, rage against the evil ones who are pushing this ideology, the ones that, because they're, because they're going to wrong you, rage against them. Instead, the gospel that Paul preached says, rejoice that the God who sent his son to die to redeem you is also keeping other brothers, other saints faithful in this fight against evil. As you prepare for battle, and you must, thank him. Thank God for the work he's doing in others. See, our natural desire is to fight hard in our own strength. Our natural desire is to satisfy ourselves by fighting for our own rights or by fleeing and avoiding conflict. But the gospel doesn't allow us to do either one. Instead, it, it and in this passage, Paul points up the necessity of being rooted in the gospel, of finding our place in, in uh, Christ's kingdom as blood-bought saints, and then looking around and seeing who else is being faithful. I'm going to band together with those brothers in this fight, and I'm going to thank God for them. And guess what? They're going to know that I'm thanking God. So the gospel liberates us to believe and obey the teaching of this passage. I know me personally, I don't pray for my brothers in Christ like I should. My pride keeps me too self-focused. I don't thank God for other believers like I should because my pride is self-isolating. It acts like blinders. So I don't even notice their faithfulness like I ought to. Even if I see it, I don't notice it. I don't pay attention to it. But Jesus died for my sinful pride and yours, and he sets us free. Now, our pride no longer needs to control us. We're united with our brothers, and we're given new sight to be able to see their faithfulness, to thank God for them, to pray for them, and to let them know that we're praying for them. So how does the gospel improve our situation? Jesus' death destroys our self-isolating pride and liberates us to unite with other faithful believers, turning to God in gratitude and prayer. That is all due to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, because Jesus rose from the grave. We are united as brothers, and we can thank God for that. All right, now we come to the end. Now what? How can we apply everything that we've just talked about? We're working our way through the passage. How can we then apply it to our lives? Well, I can uh, I can apply this at in in every arena of life. Let's start with home. Home. I can bring up stories to my wife and kids about the faithfulness of other believers. I can thank God for these saints during family worship and, and prayer times. You know, the best example that I see that I see of faithfulness in uh, in the midst of challenge and difficulty and both 
you know, at home with maybe let's say the kids aren't listening to a particular lesson or she's dealing with an, uh, an, a, a, a difficulty with her husband or she's, um, you know, processing what's going on in the world is my wife. The, the best example that I can see of this, the closest person to me in this is my wife. She loves the Lord. She's serving him faithfully. She's definitely not perfect. Neither is her husband. But she serves him faithfully at church, on social media, as she's talking about God's faithfulness in in my own family's difficulties. Uh, We've had some health issues, if you're not aware, but uh, I'm not going to talk about that now. I see her faithfulness at home, at church, with our children, in the various groups that she's a part of, in our homeschooling co-op, at the hospital when that's necessary, when my son has to go into the hospital. I also see, uh, I can apply this at work, in my own work. So I'm a support-raising missionary. The Think Institute is affiliated with crew church movements. And so I can apply this passage by praying for our supporters and our subscribers and our audience. For you, maybe it's clients, coworkers, your boss, maybe your boss is. And we can publicly celebrate the, the faithfulness, the wins of our fellow believers. You know, for me, we have many ministry supporters, some of whom I speak with regularly, and they are biblically faithful. They love the Lord. They love his word. They're passionate about keeping the gospel front and center. They hate false ideologies because they love God's truth. I'm very grateful for the Think Squad group on Facebook and Gab and Signal. We have some amazing discussions in there that are edifying, practical, and I, I thank God for, for that shining example of God's own faithfulness in the way that they are faithful. I can apply this at church. One of the things I could do is I could text my pastors. I could, I could text my community group members for, um, for, their, uh, for their faithfulness. I could text them about that. You know, at Redeemer Fellowship, my family's church, pastors Joe, Jimmy, and Pat, those are the elders that I know best. They're holding fast to the gospel and the word of God. The elders, Brian and Jeff, are doing that as well. What about my social life? Well, I could regularly pray for and stay updated with my friends through, for example, the PrayerMate app. If you don't know about PrayerMate, I highly recommend it. It has revolutionized my prayer life. I could do this consistently, let them know I'm praying for them. I've got friends who are remaining faithful in my social life. Caldoon Swice. Micah Morgan, Rafe Chenery, you know him as Pastor Rafe if you've watched the show. Tim Smith, the men of the Elgin Trail Life Troop. These guys are holding the line. Guys that I know in many other cities. There's too many to count, but uh, Justin and Jesse Gruber and um, of, uh, of Carpe Fide out there in New Jersey. Eli Ayala of Revealed Apologetics. Pastor and author Blake White. Tom Schmidt in Naperville, Illinois of Cross of Christ Church. These guys are all serving the Lord diligently, and I can let them know that I'm grateful for how they are holding the line. You know, Caldoon Swice and I just went up to Milwaukee a few nights ago for the County Before Country Express Talks put on by Matt Truella, and there were 500 other faithful saints there. We are not in this alone. This is, this is something we can be grateful for. In my personal life, how can I apply this? By not doom scrolling the news and social media, by looking for the good, especially stuff that is not making it into the headlines, and by spending ample 
time in the word and prayer. The word, of course, is the ultimate good news. I can apply it in my community, society, and nation. You can do this too by finding out who your local magistrates are, and especially whether any of them are Christians. Reach out to them in support and in prayer. Let them know you've got their back. So then working through the think method, we are also going to ask, as part of our application process here, who else needs to hear this? Well, I believe that you needed to hear this. That's why I'm sharing this on the ThinkPod. I believe that the readers of the Think Institute blog need to know about this. My wife and kids need to know about this. And then what's going what's going to be the next step? Well, for me, it was recording this podcast episode. For you, it might be spending time in prayer. It might be reaching out to your clients, your uh, the people in your life who you know are believers who are being faithful. Just let them know, hey, I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for you. And you know what? That'll encourage them, but it'll, it'll encourage you as well. And then take a moment, pause, and say, God, I am thankful for the faithful brothers and sisters that you've put in my life, those saints that are holding the line, that are not bowing the knee to the tyranny and the false ideologies and the um, the, the Marxism and the critical theories and the, the radical feminisms and, and all the different uh, idea, ideas that are out there, all the things that we get all so worked up about. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you've put other people in my life, in my situation, who have not bowed the knee to false ideologies or standing firm in the gospel, in Christ, and I'm thankful that you've kept them faithful. All right, now we're moving on to the K. This is the last section, the last portion of the think method, the K, T-H-I-N-K. And that stands for knowledge needed. What are the unanswered questions that we need to explore further? Well, for me, I'm curious about what was the heresy that the Colossians were believing? This is sometimes referred to as the Colossian heresy. I want to know more about that. And uh, this passage activated my curiosity in that way. I want to know more about the Colossian heresy. Um, At this point, someone may object to what we've talked about, what we've been teaching here. And they might say, things aren't really as bad as you're making them out to be. Uh, the, the supposed tyranny, the false teaching, you know, you're really blowing things out of proportion. Uh, things were bad in the first century because there were all kinds of, um, you know, false teachings. But in our day, we really don't have those same problems. And it's really not that bad, Joel. So relax. Well, for me, what I would say then is as believers, we must judge by God's word. When government is overstepping its God-ordained authority, when false teachings rooted in anti-theistic Marxist ideology are making headway in the church of all places, that is not the time to downplay the severity of the situation. However, one thing I would say is that you're correct that our situation is not doom and gloom. It's not because Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is reigning over the whole situation in which we find ourselves. Matthew 28, 18 is still true. It says that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. So in conclusion, to wrap everything up, I'm going to restate our big idea, and that is this. Thank God for keeping other brothers faithful today. That is how I would work through and how I have worked through Colossians 1, 1 through 3, using the think method. 
Now, this did go a little long. The reason why is there's a lot of work here. Uh, you can tell there's a lot of work that goes into the think method. You don't have to do all the initial observations. You don't have to be this in-depth with it. But I did want to share it with you because I believe that this process can enrich and edify your Bible study process. It's not the only way to go. There are many good methods out there, but I believe that if you use the think method, uh, it it can very much help you, and um, and I think it can be a blessing to you. So if you want to check that out more, go to thethink.institute slash thinkmethod. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of The Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support The Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. 